Right now on Matter of Fact, he's not your typical career politician. I'm relentless. At 83, he's been elected to office 12 times. I don't know how to quit. His claim to fame? Does Joe Biden owe Senator Ernie Chambers thanks for that one vote? Meet the legendary Ernie Chambers and find out why he's been called the most famous black man in Nebraska. Then, pollsters miss the mark again. When polls falter, journalism inevitably falters as well. Why it matters when polling numbers are off. And this is not the Erie you think you know. I wasn't coming to Erie. I, I mean, I have to be honest, there's no way I was coming. We pay our own visit to see how party politics is playing with the folks of historic Erie County, Pennsylvania. Plus. After so long, you can't take no for so long. You have to go out and get your yes. From Atlanta to Detroit, how black women became one of the most powerful voting blocks in American politics. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. There's a political transition underway from a Trump presidency to a Biden administration, though things aren't quite final yet. In fact, we'll have to wait until December 14th when the Electoral College meets to make it official. As the votes came in, it was Pennsylvania's 20 electoral votes that put native son Joe Biden over the 270 vote Electoral College threshold and made him president-elect. Pennsylvania, like most states, awards electoral votes to the winner of the state's popular vote. Only two states split their electoral votes. Nebraska, a red state, is one of those outliers, and Republicans there want to reverse course. But standing in their way, one longtime progressive state senator. Our special correspondent, Joey Chen, has the story of Ernie Chambers and his decades-long crusade. To understand how one corner of flyover America shaped this election, just look back to another presidential race that got itself on track here more than 50 years ago. In 1968, Bobby Kennedy's whistle-stop tour across Nebraska was a big hit at every stop. I'll never forget that day. It was the most exciting campaign I'd ever seen in my life at that point. Strategists called it a turning point in Kennedy's tragically brief campaign, but the memory stuck. Someone said to me, 1968 was the last year Nebraska mattered in presidential politics. That's right. More than 20 years later, Diana Schimmick campaigned to make Nebraska matter again. As a young lawmaker, she led a push to make the Cornhusker state only the second to split its electoral votes instead of the traditional winner-take-all system. Why did you want this for Nebraska? Because I wanted people to feel like their vote really counted, that it mattered whether they went to the polls or not and voted. I thought that it would increase activity and participation, um, and it did. Uh, and I thought that it might even bring some candidates to the state. Only two states, Maine and Nebraska, have the split vote, in which two votes go to the statewide winner, but each congressional district can choose its own. Most often, the big red state has stayed in the red anyway, except in 2008, and again this year, when Nebraska's second congressional district a pocket in and around Omaha picked the Democrat, Joe Biden. Does Joe Biden owe Senator Ernie Chambers thanks for that one vote? 
No, nobody owes me thanks for anything that I do. It's a modest reply, considering all the credit social media stars gave Omaha's legendary lawmaker, Ernie Chambers. His hashtag blew up, as the kids say, but Chambers, who doesn't use social media himself, values old-time heroes. The greatest philosopher slash statesperson created or produced by America gave me my mantra, Popeye the Sailor Man. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. And he's a lot, a unique figure, the first, and for many of his 46 years in office, only African-American in the unicameral. Chambers is a political independent. Now 83, he'll be forced out of office in January because of term limits. Right, and I'm glad you didn't use that word retire. I'm not retiring, I'm being kicked out. In the predominantly black North Omaha community he represents, Biden's win is a fitting swan song for Chambers, who fought off Republican attempts to eliminate the split vote 16 times, using his favorite tactic, the filibuster, to hold the floor long enough to swing needed votes. To make them more anxious or eager to get out of here than to pay attention to their work. His last fight to save the split vote came in 2016, when once again, no one could outtalk Ernie Chambers. Time is on my side, yes it is, and time was mine. And while others in the State House may find him comical, he is deadly serious about the cause. The reason I wanted to keep that one electoral vote for the second congressional district in Nebraska is that to the extent possible, the people who vote can feel that their vote had some, no matter how minuscule it was, some actual influence and impact on selecting a president. The split vote did make an impact this year, but Chambers knows that when he leaves office, Republicans may seize their chance. What will they be doing to the people of the 2nd District? They will be erasing the impact of their vote. Their vote will be nothing. Not only is that unconscionable, it is reprehensible. And it won't go unnoticed that this time, the split vote made Nebraska matter again. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen. Next on Matter of Fact, we've had several election surprises. All the polls, all the press, all the pundits thought that Thomas E. Dewey was a sure winner, except for Harry Truman. We review the races that pollsters just couldn't predict. And later, Kamala Harris isn't the first person of color to be elected vice president. Hear the story of the Native American VP you never knew about. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Black women are considered the most reliable and consistent voting block for the Democratic Party. Exit polls in Georgia prove their political power, a force that literally turned Georgia blue. Many credit Stacey Abrams for paving the way. We met Abrams when she was a candidate for Georgia's governor. Now, despite a controversial loss, she became a leading voice on voting rights as the head of Fair Fight, an effort to curb voter suppression. We have been working at this for more than a decade, and there have been dozens of organizations and hundreds of people who've made this their primary mission. I've been privileged to be able to bring to bear 
resources both before the election of 2018 and then the $40 million we were able to spend in 2018 to build a democratic infrastructure. The loyalty of the black female vote also flipped the battleground states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Last year on a visit to Detroit, we talked to black women about the power of their vote. Our special correspondent, Joey Chen, has our report. The rich red Georgia clay once sprouted fields of cotton and made a comfortable life for families like Grace Allen's. But in the early 1950s, they, like so many others, moved north, wanting more. We wanted to do a, a better living. We wanted to do more than just chop cotton and pick cotton and hoe and, and do this and that and the other. And your children. <laughs> you didn't want them to have that life. I wanted them to have a better life than I had. She brought her two boys north to a strange city, got a job working on the assembly line, and built two businesses of her own. I just wanted to do something to help somebody. A conversation in a barbershop is the most authentic thing that you can have in Detroit. At the Cut It Out Barbershop on Detroit's east side. This is what we do. Marlo Stoudemire tells us the history of his city. As early as maybe 1915, a lot of black people were transitioning from the south, white south primarily, to come to Detroit for a better opportunity. Um, that's the Great Migration. That's the Great Migration. Some six million African Americans moved north in what's known as the Great Migration. Detroit's black population alone grew more than 34% in the first half of the 20th century, with women like Grace Allen leading the way. How does she fit into that picture? I think she represents a lot of stories that you haven't heard. Women who had to maybe do it all, from being the foundation of congregations, from volunteerism, to leading organizations, specifically at a grassroots neighborhood level. Growing new roots in the community today is Jasmine Barnett. I am our ancestor's wildest dream. I am a youth activist. At 29 years old, with two degrees in hand, she moved into a fragile community to support its girls. London said the correct way to ask for sugar is, may I please have some sugar, okay? Barnett launched Ladies in Training to encourage social and professional skills and to expose these girls to a world beyond Claremont Street. A lot of the girls who live in this neighborhood, they live right here, which is 10 minutes away from downtown, and they have never been to downtown Detroit. She credits her activism to the woman who encouraged her dream, her grandma, Grace Allen. Did you realize that you were kind of creating a path for us to follow? I was hoping someone would follow me. She may not know that, or my parents may not even know that. That was a guiding light to me, making sure that I did the right thing. The right thing this year to empower Detroit's young black women at a critical moment in American politics. Hi, Justice, I'm Jasmine. It is our right and our duty to get up and vote on election day. Is it prime time for African-American women? I believe so. I think it's our time. I think it's our time because after so long, you can't take no for so long. You have to go out and get your yes. Show me the correct way. Getting their yes and getting ready to lead another generation of women in power. In Detroit, I'm Joey Chen for Matter of Fact. One of the people you just saw in that story, Marlo Stoudemire, was a big, big fan of Detroit. He was a businessman and a community leader 
and he died of complications related to COVID in March. He was just 43 years old. Marlowe is survived by his wife, Valencia, and their two young children. Next on Matter of Fact, the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take is, well, ancient. How a new generation of doctors wants to rewrite it. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. If there's a political obituary to be written in this post-election season, could it be a eulogy for polling? The public confidence is again on the line after the much talked about blue wave disintegrated in what appears to be a replay of the polling mistakes of 2016. American University professor W. Joseph Campbell is the author of Lost in a Gallup, Polling Failure in U.S. Presidential Elections. Professor Joseph Campbell, so nice to have you on the program. Let's begin by looking at the past. This election certainly isn't the first time that polling has failed poll watchers, right? That is for sure. We have seen polling failures in presidential elections in this country since the 1930s, and they've occurred often enough for us to be very wary about polls and very skeptical about what they're saying. And the most dramatic polling failure in, in U.S. presidential history had to be that of 1948, when all the polls, all the press, all the pundits thought that Thomas E. Dewey was a sure winner. And everybody was, was banking on this, except for Harry Truman, who ran a very intense, aggressive, focused campaign, and in the end won this election by four and a half percentage points. It was a shock, a shock that was probably more profound and deeper in this country than Donald Trump's victory in 2016. You have called this, uh, when you've written about polling post-election, a failure of journalism. What do you mean by that? It often is a failure of journalism in the sense that polls set a narrative. It is the predominant way by which journalists understand the dynamics of a presidential campaign. Who's ahead, who's behind, who's making up ground, and so forth. When that narrative goes wrong, when polls falter, journalism inevitably falters as well. Susan Collins of Maine, I think, is a very good example of polling gone horribly awry because it was a very important race nationally. She never led, ever, in, in the polls, ever. And yet she won, and didn't just win, she won handily over her opponent. You're absolutely right, and that is a fascinating election. They, they voted clearly for Joe Biden in this, in this year's presidential race. At the same time, they voted for Susan Collins, a Republican. So. Splitting tickets tends to be uncommon across the country these days, but Maine is an exception. And that may have been a difficult factor for pollsters to pick up on. Do you think there's an incentive among journalists to keep the race tight? I think the, the incentive uh, to, to encourage a horse race notion really lies more with the candidates and the campaigns, because they don't want to encourage their supporters to say, it's in the bag. And so that I think campaigns have a real incentive to say, hey, this is closer than we think it is. Do you then predict the end of polling? I don't anticipate the end of polling. I don't think polling, election polling is doomed. And if the industry really were that vulnerable to back-to-back -to -back election surprises, we would have seen this industry roll up and drift away after the 1952 election because that was the follow-on election after Dewey defeats Truman, that embarrassment of 1948. And the pollsters in 1952 in the Eisenhower-Stevenson presidential race got it wrong again. There is no way that 2016 and 2020 
back-to-back surprises is going to mean the end of polling. Not at all. Thank you so much for your time. Always great to see you. Well, thank you. This year, Pennsylvania proved to be a challenge for pollsters. The state had gone red in 2016. One Democratic stronghold that flipped was Erie, Pennsylvania, in the far northwest corner of the state, a place that President Trump expected to hold in 2020. I have to be honest, there's no way I was coming. I didn't have to. I would have called you and said, hey, Erie, you know, if you have a chance, get out. But we had this thing won. The president lost Erie County this time around. The vote difference, just under 1,500 votes. Last year, we visited Erie as part of the matter-of-fact listening tour and asked voters about its shifting political identity. When people from outside of Erie look at, look at our home, what, what they see, I think, is a manufacturing, an old manufacturing town, a Rust Belt town that is filled with these blue-collar voters. Uh, really nothing could be further from the truth. Find out how the voters in Erie view their community and their politics. Watch our full report on matteroffact.tv. Coming up on Matter of Fact. I am Stacey Abrams. We met her before she hit the national stage. I'm helping change the face of what we think leadership looks like. We look at how black women became political power brokers across America. And later, medical students rewriting the Hippocratic Oath to ensure racial equality. And finally, you might be surprised to hear me say this, but Kamala Harris isn't the first person of color to be elected vice president. Harris made history becoming the first woman, first black and South Asian vice president-elect, but if you check the history books, you'll find it was Charles Curtis, a member of the Kaw Nation, who won office as Herbert Hoover's running mate back in 1928. What else do we know about Curtis? He was born in Topeka, Kansas. His father was white. His mother was of mixed Kaw, Osage, and French-Canadian backgrounds. Eventually, Curtis became a lawyer and joined the Republican Party, running for Congress in 1892. Curtis ran against Hoover for the Republican presidential nomination and lost. But Hoover tapped him to be VP. And that is a little bit of vice presidential history to ponder. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention, even if you're too busy. A new class of medical students is breathing new life into an old tradition. The incoming students at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine rewrote their own version of the Hippocratic Oath. Now, it's common practice for incoming medical students to do that, but the class of 2024 went further than most. They acknowledged the more than 700,000 people who've died from COVID-19, called out by name some of the people who've recently died at the hands of police violence. And they asked their fellow students to eliminate personal bias and combat disinformation. The class recited their new version of the oath along with the traditional version as part of their orientation. I think that's pretty cool.
By the way, the earliest known version of the Hippocratic Oath dates back to the 5th century BC. Coming up, how the first Native American vice president made the ticket nearly a century ago.